If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up your Bibles to the book of Romans to chapter 4. The Apostle Paul has just been teaching us that salvation is by faith, not by works. And that's the way it has always, always been. And chapter 4 focuses us looking at Abraham. Abraham is the one to whom it says in Genesis chapter 15 verse 6, and he believed God and God accounted it to him for righteousness. And then Paul makes the point, was he saved by faith before or after he got circumcised? Answer, before. So the Jewish people who are teaching that salvation comes by circumcision, Paul says you got to take another look. In fact, the Jewish people were trying to tell Gentiles in the, in the area of Galatia that you have to become Jews and be circumcised before you can be saved. And Paul's going, think about it. Abraham was saved by faith before he ever entered into the covenant of circumcision. That's verse 10. Was it while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? So his point is that salvation is by faith. It's always been by faith. The law was not given as a way of salvation. He really hammers this home in Galatians 3. But the law was given as instruction in righteousness for how people who have been saved by faith can walk in a way that pleases God. So that brings us to verse 13. For the promise... That he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Part of the promise to Abraham was, was that through his descendants would come the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who would die on Calvary's tree to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sins. And if that promise didn't come to Abraham through the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, because that was 430 years later, God had already made the promise. And what does God do with his promises? He keeps them. Give me a verse. Psalm 89, verse 34. My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. So let's go back to that and check it. Psalm 89, verse 34. Don't let me tell you something without showing it to you. Psalm 89, verse 34. Through the prophet, God says, My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. So when God makes a covenant with Abraham, what was that covenant made on according to the scriptures? It was made on Messiah. It was made on the blood of Messiah. So when God makes a covenant on the blood of Messiah, will he break it? The answer is no. When he utters a word out of his mouth, will he change his mind? Will he break it? Will he change that word? The answer is no. But what does it say in the New Testament? Well, let's look. Go to Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. These words are read if you have a red letter edition. 
But Messiah is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Where are we going? Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Messiah is being tempted by the devil. He has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. How many of you have ever missed a meal? Three meals a day for 40 days. He's hungry. So all Satan says to him is, If you're the Son of God, command these stones become bread. What would be wrong with that? Obey a command of the devil? No way is he going to do that. Answer and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So what word has God ever spoken that is no longer important according to Messiah? Not a one. They're all important. So let's go back to Romans chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world. Where is that promise? We have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 15 to see where that promise is. There's a reason that Paul has just told us that the promise of salvation by faith is in Genesis 15. So we'll start with that promise in verse 6. At this point in time, Abraham is not called Abraham. He's called Avram. Avram means exalted father. And Abraham is complaining to God, I don't even have an heir. What do you mean I'm an exalted father? But God said, you're going to have descendants more than you can count. And this, Abraham believed, that's verse 6. And he believed in the Lord, and the Lord accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit. Think about the birth of Abraham. It was 1,948 years from creation. If you look up at the chart over here, Noah's sons are still alive. It's not all that far removed from the flood and the Tower of Babel. Babel is the Hebrew word for Babylon, which is the land of the Chaldeans. So God brings Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees, out of the Tower of Babel's region, to come to start a new people to worship him. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. He said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle, that is from the head down to the rest of the body, and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. So the big animals are laying half on one side, half on the other. And when you make the vow by walking through the pieces, the vow is, if I ever break my word, may it be done to me as was done to these animals. So it's a vow in your very own life. Verse 11, and when the vultures came down the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Avram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Avram, 
Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Remember, how many children does he have at this point? None. It's 30 years before Isaac will be born. And will serve them, they'll afflict them 400 years. How many of you over this Passover season watched the movie The Ten Commandments? I tend to do it every year. And every year they end up being in Egypt and serving the Egyptians. But God sets them free every year. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Those are the ten plagues. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here. The fourth generation, the first generation that went down into Egypt was Levi, who had a son Kohat, who had a son Amram, who had a son Moses. And in the fourth generation, God let them out, just as he promised here 430 years earlier. For the iniquity or the lawlessness of the Amorites is not yet complete. God was not willing to remove the Amorites from the land of Canaan until their sins were so bad that the land could not tolerate them anymore. It says, And it came to pass when the sun went down, it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. This was the Lord our God walking between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Avram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. If you plot that on a map, do you know what that line indicates? The borders that Israel will have after the Psalm 83 war. When they defeat all those Muslim nations that attack them, that share the border with Israel and push their borders out, that's when they will have the land that God promised Abraham so very long ago. Now let's go back to Romans, but to chapter 8. I still want to study about this verse 13. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. In Romans chapter 4, verse 13, it talked about being heirs. I want to look at that topic of heirs. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself, referring to the Holy Spirit that dwells in your heart if you're saved, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. One who is truly saved by faith should never wonder, am I really a child of God? The Holy Spirit inside should testify to you that you are. There should not be a question. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Messiah. What will Messiah be heir of? Everything. If we are joint heirs with Messiah, what will, be, will we be joint heirs of? Everything. It says, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Let's continue this by looking at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, also written by Paul. Galatians 
Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 29. How many of you are a child of Abraham? If you're saved by faith, you are a child of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29. Let me give you a chance to find it. Yes, ma'am. Going back to Romans 8, 16 and 17, it said, he said the Holy Spirit will bear witness with our spirit that we are children and that we shouldn't be doubting right. whether we are or not. Um, that, for a long, long time, I doubted that. And uh, I kept doubting my salvation. So that's why it's hard for me to understand that the Holy Spirit spoke bear witness with mine when a lot of times I have questions about that. Mm-hmm. Okay. We'll have to work on that. But Galatians 3, 26 to 29 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Messiah Yeshua. Is there any other way to be saved other than by faith? The answer is no. For as many of you as were baptized in the Messiah, I mean, have been baptized in the Messiah, since you have put on Messiah, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Messiah Yeshua. So once we're saved by faith, it doesn't matter how we were born, doesn't matter who our parents are. What matters is, have you been saved by faith? And if you are Messiah's, then you are Abraham's seed. What's another word for seed? Children, descendants, and heirs according to the promise. So that agrees with Romans 8. Join heirs with Messiah if we've been saved by faith. Galatians 4, 7. Who obeys the Father, the Son or the slave? Answers both. The slave obeys out of fear. The child obeys out of love. So in verse 7 it says, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, a child of God. And if a son, then an heir of God through Messiah. No longer a slave, but a child. A loving child obeys a loving father. Ephesians chapter 3. All these books are written by Paul to different congregations in different parts of the world to get across the same point. Ephesians 3 verses 1 through 7. Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 7. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Messiah Yeshua, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Messiah. In other words, when he met the Lord on the road to Damascus, Messiah taught him himself. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. What does that mean, fellow heirs? Fellow heirs with the Jewish believers. Of the same body 
and partakers of his promise in Messiah through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his powers. So again, Paul is saying that there are not two groups of believers, one Jewish, one non-Jewish, but that once we come to faith in Messiah, we all become one. That was his big teaching in Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look also in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Still talking about that concept of becoming heirs of God and joint heirs with Messiah. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 is about Noah. And it says, by faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Did Noah come before or after Abraham? Before. Several generations before. So when did salvation start being by faith? It's always been from the beginning. Exactly right. It's always been that way. James chapter 2 is the last cross-reference we will take to this verse. James chapter 2, verse 5. James comes right after Hebrews. Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who what? Who love him. Faith and love go hand in hand. Do you love the Lord? You can't love the Lord unless you have faith in the Lord. You must believe that he exists before you can love him. So let's go back to Romans chapter 4, up to verse 14, which begins with the word for, which means because. So is it a new topic? No, it's a continuation. For if those who are of the law are heirs. What does that word of mean? If they're trying to earn their salvation through works of the law, how does that work? Not at all. Did it ever? No, never did. For if those who are of the law that is trying to be saved by the works of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. What did we read in Psalm 89, verse 34? Can God's covenant be broken? No. Can God's word fail? No. So verse 14's point is, salvation does not come through works of the law, and it never did. Salvation by faith preceded the giving of the commandments on Mount Sinai by at least 430 years. Let's go back to Galatians 3. And chase this verse just a little bit. Galatians 3, verses 26 to 29. 
We just read them. I just want you to put them in your notes again. Verse 26, for you are all children of God through faith in Messiah Yeshua. Verse 29, if you are Messiahs, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Is there anything in those verses that suggests that we can earn salvation? Not a thing. So let's go to Galatians 4. We looked at verse 7 last time, but I want to look at verses 1 through 7. Put them all together. Galatians 4.1. Now I say that the heir, that's the child, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he's master of all. How many of you were children once upon a time? Did you get to do whatever you wanted, or were you told what to do? You were told what to do. But as under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. That is, the guardians and the stewards were appointed to keep us safe and protected until we were of sufficient knowledge and maturity to look after ourselves. Verse 3 says, Even so we, when we were children... We're in bondage under the elements of the world. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Messiah. So one of the purposes of the commandments of God were to keep us safe and protected until Messiah would come to be our Savior, our Messiah, our friend. Titus chapter 3. I'm thrilled we get to go to Titus so infrequently. Titus chapter 3. But some of you didn't know there were three chapters in Titus. <laughs> Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, that is, those government officials appointed over us, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. So we got to put away all our jokes about the commander-in-chief. Well, well. Gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. He's saying that before we got saved, we were just like the rest of the unsaved people in the world. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out in us abundantly through Yeshua the Messiah, our Savior. 
that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. In other words, if you've been saved by faith, then you should keep the commandments of God. It says, these things are good and profitable to men. Are we saved by keeping commandments? No. But you know you are saved when you do keep the commandments. Because you keep them out of faith and love. Give me a verse that tells us that. Where is the test of whether we truly know him or not? First John, but let's first go to John 17, 3. And I need to obey God rather than man. Correct. So if the government has you do something that's against God's laws, we should not do them. Absolutely. Nor would I ever suggest that we should. But, but reading that first part indicated that. you got to put the, all the parts together, so I'm glad that you added that. Do we violate the commandments of God because the government tells us to? No, we do not. John 17, 3, because who's going to judge us come judgment day? Won't be our government. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life. I love statements like that. Nice, straight, and clear. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Yeshua the Messiah whom you have sent. And what color are those words? Red. So if you truly know God and our Messiah Yeshua, then you have eternal life. And if you go to 1 John chapter 2, it gives a test, a litmus test where we can tell. Do we know him or don't we? 1 John 2 verses 3 and 4. In fact, we'll go through six. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So why do those who are saved by faith keep the commandments of God? Because he said, if you love me, comma, keep my commandments. Let's go back to Romans 4, verse 15. Was, yes, ma'am. I just want to let you know, I looked up the, under, the word under in Galatians. Four, four, and four, five, and it's the word hoopo. Mm-hmm. So it means all fire through instead of under. Yes. Correct. Romans chapter 4, verse 15, begins with the word because. Have we changed topics? No, the topic continues. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. In other words, God will not hold you responsible for sin if he didn't tell you not to do it. 
Not only does it say that here, Romans 4.15, where there is no law, there is no transgression, but it's also Romans chapter 5, verse 13, which says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. So the commandments of God are to show us a way that we can walk that are pleasing to him. And when we do not do it, that's how the Bible defines sin. Give me the verse where God says sin is lawlessness. It's 1 John 3, 4. So let's go look at 1 John 3, 4. To see what does the Bible say. Don't know about you, but that's not the way I was taught growing up in church. But what does the Bible say? 1 John 3, 4. Whoever commits sin. See that word, whoever? That means anybody. Jew, Gentile, black, white, man, woman, anybody. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. That word lawlessness in Greek is anomia, and it means that which is contrary to God's commandments. That's how the Bible defines sin. Back to Romans 4, verse 16. Therefore, different topic? Nope, same topic. Therefore, let me give you a chance to get back there. Therefore, it is a faith that is what's of faith? Salvation. That it might be according to grace. It's a gift of God. You can never earn it. You can never deserve it. You can never buy it. It's a faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed. The seed, remember Galatians 3, who are the seed of Abraham? All those who are saved by faith. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. That's his way of saying whether Jew or Gentile makes no difference. If you've been saved by faith, then we are one in Messiah. One new man. No longer two. Let's go back to Galatians 3, verse 7. Galatians 3, verse 7 is also written by the Apostle Paul. Galatians 3, verse 7. Therefore I know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. How many of you thought the gospel started 2,000 years ago with the birth of Messiah? It says here he preached the gospel to Abraham, saying in you all the nations shall be blessed. That is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah. 
to help us understand what it means that Abraham believed God and God accounted to him for righteousness, let's go back to Genesis. In Genesis 15, verse 6, we read it already. So let me just read it to you again. You've seen it with your own eyes. And he, that is Avram, believed in the Lord, and he counted to him for righteousness. Now how did God determine that Abraham's faith was real? Did he take his word for it? Let's look at Genesis 26, because it tells us how God knew that Abraham's faith was real, that he wasn't just speaking empty words. Genesis 26, verses 4 and 5. Genesis chapter 26, verses 4 to 5. And I, he's talk, God is talking to Isaac here, Abraham's son. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I'll give to your descendants all these lands. And in your seed, that is Messiah, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So Messiah will come from Abraham and through Isaac. Because, see verse 5, because. Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Abraham was saved by faith. And how did he demonstrate that faith? It was by obedience, through his actions. That's what our scriptures tell us. Back to Romans 4, we're up to verse 17. As it is written. What's that mean, as it is written? It means it's in the scriptures. We can go look it up in the Bible. I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead, meaning what? Resurrection. And calls those things which did not exist as though they did. That is, he's a God of prophecy. What do we read in Isaiah? That only God can tell us the end from the beginning. So let's go back to Genesis 17. Because Paul's referring back to it. Genesis 17 verses 1 through 8. Got a question for you Bible scholars. Which came first? Genesis 15 or 17? 15. In Genesis 15, God promised salvation by faith. Genesis 17, let's see what this is about. Verses 1 through 8. When Avram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. Blameless there in Hebrew is what? Tamim means without spot or blemish. And I'll make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him saying. What's that word saying mean? It's a quote. It's the very words out of God's own lips. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you 
and you shall be a father of many nations. That's what Paul just quoted in Revelations, I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 4. Shall be a father of many nations. Why is this a comfort to Avram? He's 99 years old and doesn't have any children. Except Ishmael. And does God count Ishmael? God does not count Ishmael. No longer shall your name be called Avram, which is exalted father. But your name shall be Avraham, which is father of a multitude. For I, will, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. What's another way to say your descendants after you? Your children, your children's children. How about your seed, as we read in Galatians chapter 3? So that covenant is between God and you and I, if you're saved by faith. And their generations for an everlasting covenant. What's everlasting mean? Forever. Doesn't end. To be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I will give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That's twice. Two different verses here, verse 7 and verse 8, where God promises to be God to all those who are the seed of Abraham. Let's go to Isaiah 26. Does God really promise the resurrection in the Old Testament? Absolutely. Isaiah 26, verses 19 to 21. The rapture and the resurrection will happen at the same time. And I believe soon and very soon. Isaiah 26, 19. Whoops, I got a red number one out there. Let me go look and see. <laughs> yes, it is possible. Mm -hmm. It was a private question. But the question is when God says your children will be like the, the number like the stars in heaven, could that be referring to the angelic host? Since in Revelation 12, they're referred to as the stars of heaven. And that's why I was saying, yep, absolutely. My personal opinion, you don't find it in scripture anywhere is because a third of the angels fell with Satan, that's in Revelation 12, I think the number of people that get saved will equal the number of angels that fell, and we get to take their jobs. We'll find out. Just a thought. Okay, verse 19. Your dead shall live. How can dead people live again? Through resurrection. Together with my dead body they shall arise. The my there is Isaiah. Isaiah says, when that trumpet blows, I'm out of here. And I agree with him. What was that Rod Parsley used to say? Percolators percolate and Christians like to tribulate, but I'm out of here on the first load. <laughs> Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust. Though That song is recorded for us in Revelation chapter 5. For your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people. Here's where the 
resurrection and the rapture come together. He didn't say, come my formerly dead people. When he says, come my people, that's all of his people. Enter your chambers. The word chamber in Hebrew is chadar. It means a bridal chamber. And shut your doors behind you. Just like God shut the door to the ark before the rain begins to fall. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is passed. That word indignation in Hebrew is za'am. It is the term for the wrath of God being poured out in the tribulation period. So the believers are caught up to heaven. The door to heaven is closed. Then the tribulation period unfolds on earth and the wrath of God gets poured out. When it's over, at the end of the seven years comes verse 21. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. What's another word for iniquity? Lawlessness. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. And then Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 to 10. I told you it said in Isaiah that God is a God of prophecy. Here it is. We can read it ourselves. Isaiah 46, 9 to 10. Isaiah 46. If I get going too fast, tell me to slow down. Isaiah 46, 9 to 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. This is a, in a portion of Isaiah where God tells Israel to bring all their pagan idols and put them in a pile. And ask them what's going to happen tomorrow. Too hard? Okay, ask them what happened yesterday and how it's going to turn out. They say what? Nothing. And God says, I can prove to you that I'm God. Because only I can tell you the end from the beginning. And that's why Isaiah goes on to prophesy the coming of Messiah the first time is death, burial, and resurrection. The 2,000 years that intervene. The 1,000-year millennial kingdom on earth. And then the new heavens and the new earth. He prophesies until time is no more. Back to Romans chapter 4. We're up to verse 18. Verses 18 to 22 are a block. So we'll read them together and then talk about them. Verses 18 to 22 say, Who, contrary to hope, that is, how old was Abraham? 99. In hope believed, believed that God would provide him all these children. So that he became the father of many nations. Many nations? How many nations? Lots of nations. There were the 12 tribes of Israel, 10 of which got scattered around the world, the Assyrian captivity. But he also had Ishmael, who had many tribes. And then through Hagar, also called Keturah, he had another 12 sons who became heads of many tribes. So as you look around the Middle East, those are virtually all descended from Abraham. So the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, 
he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Hey, she was a spring chicken. She was only 90. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. He believed that God would do this, and God did it. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. So in the physical world, is a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman likely to have a first child? Not likely. But God said it was going to happen, and Abraham believed it. It was accounting for righteousness. Let me explain once more. That word believed is the Hebrew verb ha-amin, ha-amin, from which we get the word amen. He believed that God would do what God said he would do. And that is where the word faith comes from. The word faith is imunah, which comes from that same verb. And it means believing that when God says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. Let's turn back to Genesis. Rarely do I have us go over the same verses so many times. But I want to keep adding layers onto it. In Genesis 15, we want to add verses 5 and 6 together. Because Paul just did in Romans. Then he, that is the Lord, brought him, that's Avram, Abraham, outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. He said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, he counted him for righteousness. This is what Abraham believed. God said, I'm going to take you this 100-year-old man and your 90-year-old wife and you're going to have so many kids that you can't even count them. And without even a moment's hesitation or doubt, Abraham says, looking forward to him. Wayne? Yes? If that, not if, but because of that, can you explain then why he was with Hagar? Because of that, can I explain why he was with Hagar? Yes. That happened before this. God had promised, go back to Genesis Um. By before this, I mean before the events of Genesis 17 that we just looked at. Okay. So God has said he's going to give him all these children. And in chapter 16 of Genesis, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Avram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. Okay, the tradition of the day is if Abraham has relations with Hagar, Hagar gives birth on Sarah's knees. The child is considered Sarah's, not Hagar's. So Sarah's saying, maybe God needs some help. 
He said, I'm going to bear you a child. Well, for 100 years now, that hadn't happened. So here's a way we can help God fulfill his promise. That was like a faith on her part, not his. He just does what she tells him to do, which may be (laughs) foolish, but okay. So let's not go down that way. But in the book of Hebrews, it it compares and contrasts Ishmael and Isaac. One's the son of the promise. The other is the result of trying to help God keep his promise. Okay. Back to Genesis 17, verses 18 and 19. Genesis 17, verses 18 and 19. You can't ever say that Abraham didn't occasionally um, slip a little. (laughs) But then he was 100 years old. You got to keep that in mind. Genesis, we're up to Genesis 17, verses 18 and 19. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So Abraham wants God to say, Ishmael is the promised child. And what does God say? Then God said, No. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. So Abraham really wanted Ishmael to be the progenitor of his many nations and kings. And God said, no, Messiah will not come through Ishmael. Ishmael's descendants do come into the picture now and then. Did you watch the movie The Ten Commandments over this Passover season? When Moses is driven out of Egypt, he goes to where? Jethro, the sheik of Midian, these are Ishmael's descendants. And they take Moses in, and he marries Jethro's daughter, and he goes up on the Mount Sinai there, which is in the Midianite um, range where they would feed their sheep. And that's where he met the true and living God. But Midian was um, a, a son of Abraham and Keturah. Correct. When Midian was the son himself. Jethro dwelt in the land of Midian, but he wasn't a descendant of Midian. He was the prince, the priest of Midian. Yes, but that's just the region that he lived in. At least if you watched the movie. Remember I said, did you watch the movie? I didn't check his lineage in the Bible, but, okay. Genesis eighteen twelve. Does God give Sarah a child? Yes. In Genesis eighteen twelve. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? But the answer is yes. Back to Romans, chapter 4, verses 23 to 24. When the first promise was made to Abraham to be the father of everybody, many Many nations. nations, 
Sarah wasn't mentioned. So Abraham could have figured, well, maybe God thinks Hagar's going to start this. Yep, he certainly wanted Ishmael to be the heir, but, but God said no. God wasn't specific about Sarah until this point. Correct. Right? You are correct. Okay. Versus. Yes, Mike and Carol. Okay. Okay, I'm muting everybody then. Okay. Back to verses 23 and 24. They are a unit. Let's take them together. Now it was not written for his sake alone. What was? Verse 22. It was accounted to him for righteousness. It was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. What does the word imputed mean? Charged to your account. So it's not just that God charged Abraham with righteousness because of his faith, but it's for all those who have that faith. So verse 23 and 24. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us, that it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Yeshua our Lord from the dead. How many of you were there when Messiah rose from the dead? None of us. Then how do you know it happened? By faith. God said it. We believe it. And God accounts that faith to us for righteousness. The word believing here in these words, or believe in verse 24, it's actually believing. It's a present participle, meaning ongoing faith. It's not enough to just say, well, I guess so, and tomorrow I change my mind. It's got to be an ongoing faith that does not waver. From that verb, ha'amin, which means God will do what God says he will do. We're up to chapter 5. Let me get some of my notes. Well, we're almost there. <laughs> Not quite. Okay. Verse 25 says, Who was delivered up because of our offenses. Oh, that's going to take some explanation. Okay. What does that mean? Messiah Yeshua was delivered up. What does delivered up mean? He was taken to be crucified because of our sin. Why not for his sin? He didn't have any. So let's go back to Isaiah 53 verse 5 and see how that was prophesied a thousand years before Messiah was born, give or take. Maybe 700 years. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was wounded for what? Our transgressions. That word wounded means pierced. Let me let you find Isaiah 53. 
Verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. 300 years before Isaiah writes this, David had wrote in Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and my feet. That's the piercing Isaiah refers to. He was bruised for our iniquities. No, it actually says he was crushed for our iniquities, like you crush an olive to get the olive oil out. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So Isaiah 53 was very clear that Messiah's death would have nothing to do with any sin of his, for he was sinless. He was that Tamim, that perfect lamb of God. Is this the only prophecy in scripture that said he would die for the sins of others? Give me one in Daniel, chapter 9, verse 26. Daniel 9, 26, good, so let's turn there. Daniel 9, 26. I love the book of Daniel. You, yeah, I bet. You cannot understand Revelation if you do not understand the book of Daniel. Because so many of the symbols in Revelation are defined for us in Daniel. So Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27 are about 70 Sabbath year cycles. Just like from the time of creation, we have six days and then the Sabbath day. So we have six years and then the Sabbath year. And in verse 24, it talks about 70 weeks. See that word weeks, 70 weeks are determined. It's not the Hebrew word weeks. What's the Hebrew word for weeks? Shavuot. And this word is Shavuim. So it's simply 77. So 77 year periods are determined for your holy city, your people, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. That's a lot to do in 77 year cycles. But they're not all consecutive. Verse 25 says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, who gave that command? Artaxerxes Longeminus, the son of Queen Esther, from the book of Esther. Until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks or seven periods of seven years and 62 periods of seven years. The streets shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. And we know from history it took them 49 years to rebuild the streets and the walls of Jerusalem. And after the 62 periods of seven years, which brings us to the first century of the common era, Messiah shall be cut off, which means to be killed, but not for himself. That is, he wasn't killed for any sins of his. So why did he die? Because of our sins. And lastly, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21. Wayne. Yes, ma'am. So that word, Shavoim, 
we're saying that that refers to a seven-year cycle? Right. It starts with the first year through the sixth year, and then the seventh year is the Sabbath year. So that's how we can know for sure that the tribulation period begins the first year of a seven-year Shabbat cycle. Ah, and Edmund put a, put a quote here that I'd like to read to you. Scholar, theologian, Professor Tom Wright said this week, quote, I don't believe in the resurrection because of the Bible. I believe the Bible because of the resurrection, end quote. That's pretty cool. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he took our sins and put them upon Messiah Yeshua, he who knew no sin, and made him sin for us so that he could pay the price. The wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life through our Messiah Yeshua. Yes, ma'am. Ah, I will. God bless you. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, there are 70 periods that are each seven years long. But they're not just any seven years. They're a seven-year Sabbath cycle. So there are six years and then a Sabbath year, starting from creation, just like there have been six days, and the seventh day is the Sabbath from the time of creation. So each of those 70 time periods is six years and then a Sabbath year. 69 of those have been completed. They were completed 2,000 years ago. There's one remaining seven-year period from Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, that you and I call the seven-year tribulation period. Because it's a seven-year Shabbat cycle, it has to begin in a year one and end in a Sabbath year. So it can't start at just any particular year. It's got to start on the first year of a Sabbath cycle. And has that happened? That has not yet happened. We are waiting for that. <clears throat> when the rapture and the resurrection comes, we will know we have reached that week. I probably shouldn't say this because, well, he didn't back it up a lot in the teaching that I heard just this week, but y'all know who Mark Biltz is. Leads a Messianic congregation in Washington State, wrote the book about the four blood moons that everybody was talking about, yeah, him. He said just this week in an excerpt that they, they put up on YouTube that this Rosh Hashanah, this fall, begins the first year of a 50-year cycle. And that the rapture must either be this fall or it can't fall again for another 50 years. He didn't prove, though, why he believed that this Rosh Hashanah, this Feast of Trumpets, begins a Sabbath year cycle. So that's why I probably shouldn't have said it. Jews have not been following a Sabbath cycle. Yeah, I know that. I know that. That's why I wish he had given some kind of proof, but he didn't.
Okay. Oh man, time's going. Back to Romans chapter 5. There is so much here. Let's see how much we can get through. Verse 1, therefore, what does therefore mean? Because of this, because of what? Because salvation comes by faith and we believe that Messiah died for us, took our sins upon him, saved by faith. Therefore, having been justified by faith. That's the new word he's introducing. Up to now, he's been, it was... He believed God. It was accounted him for righteousness. Now he's using the term justified. What's another way to say justified? Saved. Therefore, having been justified, which means, literally what it means is, having been found righteous in the eyes of God. By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. Justified by faith. Let's go to the book of Luke. In the Gospels. Luke chapter 18. Verse 14. And we'll have to start in verse 9 for context so that we can understand verse 14. Messiah spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. What does he mean, trusted in themselves? Self-righteousness. What does the Lord think about self-righteousness? Not much. Luke chapter, seven, chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 9 so that we can understand verse 14. Yeah, so we're now up to verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Let me ask this, which one do you think is the self-righteous one? That's the Pharisee. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. Did God command us to fast twice a week? No. So what's he basing his doctrine on? Man-made rules and regulations. I give tithes of all that I possess. Did God command we give tithes of all that we possess? No, just of the agricultural products. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. So the tax collector who simply beat his chest and cried out, have mercy on me, a sinner. God forgave his sins. And that's what that word justified there means. God forgave him. Let's go to Acts 13. Acts 13. 
The key verse is 39, but we'll start in 38, so we don't start in the middle of a sentence. Paul has just taught them about how Messiah was crucified, buried, and resurrected. In verse 38, he says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, our Messiah Yeshua, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified, meaning the sins have been forgiven, from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. The sacrifices in the temple, were they for intentional sins? No. Only for unintentional. So what in the law of Moses took away intentional sins? The answer is nothing. Nothing. Romans 2.13 Through Messiah, we can be forgiven of almost any sin. The exception being blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Yep. Romans 2.13. What does that mean? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Remember when he was casting out demons and the scribes and Pharisees said, you cast him out by Beelzebub, which is the devil. That's attributing the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan. And he said, you ain't getting out of that one. Not here or in heaven above. Okay, Romans 2.13. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Does that mean we're saved by works? No. No. It means if you want to be forgiven of your sins, stop sinning. What's another word for stop sinning? Repent. How many of you have done like I have and searched the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, trying to find some place where the Lord said, now, Go and sin again. It's not there, is it? It says, go and sin no more. That's what repentance is. Stop sinning. What is sin? Sin is breaking God's commandments. It's lawlessness. But if one is saved out of the Gentile world, didn't Paul say continue to walk as the rest of the Gentiles? Really? That sounds like Ephesians 4.17, doesn't it? So let's go over to Ephesians 4.17. Thus I say, therefore, in testifying the Lord. Let me give you a chance to find it. Ephesians 4.17. For this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility or perverseness of their mind. So if we're not supposed to continue to walk in sin as we did before we got saved, what's he telling us to do? 
repent. In fact, it keeps going, and down in verse 24 it says that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. What's the opposite of righteousness? Lawlessness. So which sins should we continue to walk in once we get saved? None. Why? If you love me, comma, keep my commandments. That's John 14, 15. Where does it say, what is the love of God? That we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. That's in 1 John chapter 5. That's in the New Testament also. Hmm. Let's go to Romans 3. Once we're saved by faith, does that not make the law of God void, empty, or of no value anymore? Paul addresses that in Romans 3, doesn't he? Romans 3, verses 30 and 31. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, that means the Jews, and the uncircumcised through faith, which means the Gentiles, do we then make void the law through faith? His answer, certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. The word established means to make it strong, to give it effect. Because without faith, it's impossible to what? To please God. You can keep all the commandments you want to, and if you're not saved by faith, doesn't impress God a bit. Go to 1 Corinthians 6, 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. First Corinthians 6, 11. We'll start in verse 9 for context. Because context is important. So 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous... What's another term for unrighteous? Lawless. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But here's verse 11 why we're here. And such were some of you. He's talking to the Gentile believers in the church at Corinth. Notice he doesn't say, and such are some of you. But such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Yeshua and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, did they continue to walk in sin after they got saved? They did not. Go to Galatians 2. Verses 16 and 17. But you know what, I guess we have to start in 15, because I can't start in the middle of a sentence. That's just wrong. Galatians 2, 
verse 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Yeshua the Messiah, even we have believed in Messiah Yeshua, that we might be justified by faith in Messiah and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Messiah, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Messiah therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. What does that verse mean? If while we seek to be justified by Messiah that is saved by faith, what if we continue in our sins? Paul takes that head on. Can we continue in our sin? No. When he says certainly not, in Greek that's mejanoi, which means what? No way, Jose. In the King James, God forbid. Let's look also at Galatians 3.11. The reason I want to look at Galatians 3.11 is too many people think that these are just New Testament concepts and they're not. It's always been this way. Galatians 3.11. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For, quote, the just shall live by faith. Unquote. Where's Paul quoting from? Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. Is that in the New Testament? No, that's in the Old Testament. It's the way it always has been. But the scribes and Pharisees taught the people wrong. That's why Messiah came to teach us correctly. Galatians 5 4. I had Becky make me up a t-shirt that says, yes, I have read Galatians. Galatians 5.4. You have become estranged from Messiah, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. The problem in Galatians isn't what I've always heard it taught. I always heard it taught that the people in Galatians got saved and then they wanted to repent and not walk in sin anymore. And they were told, no, 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 you can't do that. That's trying to help God save you. That's not what this is about. Paul had come to Galatia and taught salvation by faith. Then others had come afterwards from Jerusalem and said, Paul was wrong. You're Gentiles. You can't be saved by faith. You have to be circumcised. That's how you get saved. How do we know that's the issue? Go back to Acts 15 and read verse 1. So the issue in Acts 15 in the book of Galatians is how we get saved, not whether we keep the commandments of God once we get saved. Acts 15, verse 1. I have a lot of preachers tell me that's the same thing, but it's not, not by a mile. 
Acts 15, 1, and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren that as they come to Galatia and teach the believers that Paul has preached to there, quote, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So that's the issue in Acts chapter 15 is how are we saved? Are Gentiles saved by circumcision? No. How are we saved? By faith. How are Jews saved? By faith. One way, there's only one. Give me a verse where Messiah may have said, I'm the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. John 14, 6. Very good. Let's go back to Roman. Um, yeah, we're in Romans. Romans chapter 5. We're up to verse 2. Wayne. Yes, ma'am. And the, the men that came down from Judea. The men that came down from Judea. They were Pharisees. They were actually Pharisees from the school of Shammai. There were two main schools of the Pharisees in Israel at the time, Hallel and Shammai. Messiah tended to agree with the teachings of Hallel, but not Shammai. And Shammai taught that God can't save Gentiles. He can only save Jews. So he taught if you're circumcised, you're saved. And if you're not circumcised, you're not saved. Can you say the last part louder? Can I say the last part louder? Yes. They taught... And it's still the primary teaching in Judaism today that if you are circumcised, you are saved. And if you are uncircumcised, you are not saved. In fact, it says in the Talmud, back there in those many volumes, what about the Menim? By the Menim, they mean the believers in Messiah out of Judaism. Because they're circumcised, they were circumcised when they were eight days old. And it says, don't worry about them. At the point of death, angels will come down from heaven and reattach the foreskin so that they can go to hell. That really is what's going on in Galatians is these Pharisees from the school of Shammai who've gotten saved have gone up to there and said, Paul was wrong. You're, you're saved by circumcision. And Paul's going, oh no. Yeah, they considered themselves saved because they were circumcised. They just then thought that believing in Messiah was just icing on the cake. Remember how Messiah keeps saying, don't tell me that you're the children of Abraham. Um, they were going around saying, hey, I'm circumcised, therefore I'm saved. Get away from here. I don't need a savior. He's going, oh, but you're wrong. Wait. Yep. Edmund. Um, in the uh, major six or so debates of the day, um, between Hillel and Shammai, um, like you were saying, Jesus tends towards the uh, Hillel side. The one exception, and it's yeah, there was one exception. The one on adultery, and it's, it's word for word what uh, Shammai taught uh, a generation earlier. Yeah, on adultery. But yeah. all the others, he goes up up Hillel's end. Yep. What Emin is talking about is the one place where Messiah agreed with Hillel is Hillel said you can only divorce your wife for adultery. And Hillel taught you can divorce her any, for any reason. She burnt your breakfast this morning, Shemai. kick her out. She's out of here. Shammai taught that you can only divorce her for adultery. Hillel taught you can divorce her for any reason. If she displeases you, she didn't do her hair right this morning. And She's Jesus, out of here. Jesus no. 
He agreed with everything Halal taught except that. Okay. That was so the one place where he agreed with Shammai and said, if you would divorce her except for adultery, you have done wrong, boy. Yeah. So let's make sure we're all on the right page. He does not believe that if Becky burns my dinner, I can throw her to the curb. Wrong answer. Okay. Back in Romans 5, I know, when I get into such long explanations, sometimes I get confusing. Did I hear somebody? Are the truths trying to, to get the one? Get the Gentiles to get circumcised in order to um, say that they're saved as well because of the, uh, the Noahide laws? Oh, no. Let's not even get started with the Noahide laws. That's something that's non existent. Um, do you guys know what the Noahide laws are since she brought it up? The Jewish people say there's a group of laws that apply to Gentiles that are separate and distinct from the law that applies to the Jews. Um, they just made it up. In fact, if you go to their list of the Noahide laws and the sites they put for each one, they have nothing to do with the law. And when you point that out to them, they get really unhappy. Okay, so back to Romans 5 verse 2. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. When he says we, he makes no distinction between one who is saved out of the Jewish world and one that's saved out of the Gentile world. Because God makes no such distinction. Let's go back to Acts 15. Now that we have seen the issue in verse 1, let's see the resolution. Acts comes before Romans. Yep, we all know that. Mm -hmm. Acts 15. So many people start in Acts 15 with verses 19 and 20 without looking at the issue. The issue is how are we saved? That's verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught their brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The answer to the question of how we are saved is in verse 9. But we'll start earlier in verse 7 so we understand the context. When there had been much dispute, the word dispute means they're coming down almost to the point of fisticuffs. Some of those believers in Jerusalem agree with those who taught Gentiles have to be circumcised to be saved. And the other half says, no, salvation's by faith. So they're arguing amongst themselves heatedly. Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, that's Acts chapter 10, God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Again, verse 9, made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So Peter says, this shouldn't be an issue. 
It was resolved some time ago. When you know that Peter preached the gospel to Cornelius and his families, and they got saved by faith, they were baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, even demonstrated that through the speaking in tongues. And in Acts chapter 26, verse 18, Acts 26, verse 18, which is in a section that begins in verse 15, so that's where we'll start reading. But the key verse, like I said, is 18. Paul is recounting his meeting the Lord in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. He says, so I said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Yeshua, whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jew or Gentile, salvation is by faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. 7. Remember what we read in the quote from Habakkuk 2, 4, the just shall live by faith. Paul has adopted that and teaches it, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Let me give you a chance to find it. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Let's go on to Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. How is a man justified? Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Yeshua the Messiah. If we're not justified by the works of the law, then why do we try to keep God's commandments to the best of our ability? He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. 1 John 2 says, how do we know that we know him? If we keep his commandments. Galatians 2.20. It'll quit eventually. <laughs> Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Messiah. It is no longer I who live, but Messiah lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by what? By faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by what? By faith. Preach the gospel to Abraham before and saying, And you, all the nations, shall be blessed. Verse 11. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for, quote, the just shall live by faith, quote. And is that Hebrews? I bet it is. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 6. I made reference to this a while ago, but we didn't turn to it. But now read it with your own eyes. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. How do we diligently seek after God? By faith, through his word, by observing that which he commanded us to do. Because that demonstrates that our faith is truly in him. Back to Romans. Oh, our time's getting, getting short. Verse 3, Romans 5, 3. And not only that, we also glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Is that tribulation referring to the tribulation period? The answer is no. Let's start with Matthew 13. There are actually denominations out here that say once you get saved you can never get sick. You can never have any kind of personal problems. Life is just a bed of roses. There are not any people I know of. Matthew 13, 21. So Matthew 13, we'll begin in verse 18 for context. It's from a parable, the parable of the sower. Verse 18, Messiah says, Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, what's that, the word of the kingdom? The gospel. The gospel. And does not understand it. Then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. Who's the wicked one? Satan. Satan doesn't want us to get saved. What a shock. Verse 20, but he received the seed on stony places. This is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So why does Satan send tribulation against the believers in this world? He wants them to... 
stumble to give up their faith. To say that, well, gee, if this happens, then I don't believe in God anymore. Have you ever heard somebody say that? I have so many times. My child died, so there must not be a God. I don't believe in God anymore. Wrong answer. Matthew 24, 9. Wayne? Yes, ma'am? Can we elaborate on that because of the word? He who believes... I guess I'm confused as to why the word would be the problem. Because if Satan brings tribulation against you, it's because he wants you to renounce the gospel and turn away from God. Not everything that happens in this world is tribulation from Satan. But when it comes from Satan, the evil one is to try and break our faith. Just think back to the book of Job. Why did Satan bring all that tribulation on Job? Because of his faith. Because he wanted Job to renounce God. Matthew, he also... Right, he only served you, God, because you gave him stuff. Take it away and he'll just spit in your face. Didn't happen, Wait. did it? Yes, Edmund. I, I, I wrote a thing over Lent and the, about Jesus in the wilderness. And the thought that I found myself writing about was that one of the central ideas of the challenge in the wilderness was that um, it turns it all back to... What about you, Jesus? Why aren't you thinking about you and taking the, you know, it's all about you rather inward uh, on yourself rather than the, the serving God, which is all um, serving God. You give yourself to God. Satan always turns you back on yourself. So when, when something horrendous happens that makes people struggle, like, say, the loss of a child, it's, it's all about, yes, look how you feel, look how you feel, think about you, and, and therefore, how can God be there, because look what he's done to you, he makes you look at yourself, uh, that's not to take away the painfulness of that situation. Oh, certainly but not, but you're right. It's, it's that, that the enemy is, 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 is making you completely fill up with how... You feel you're at the center of everything. And yep. that way you will then turn away from God. That's his hope and desire. Okay, Matthew 24, 9. Matthew 24 is part of the Olivet Discourse. The disciples ask him, when are these things going to happen? What will be the sign of your coming, that is the parousia, coming as a king in your kingdom? When will these things be? And he gives us some signs that his physical return to set up the kingdom will be drawing near. First time, one of those signs is, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you'll be hated of all nations for my name's sake. In other words, there's a time coming that if you name the name of Messiah, saved by faith, then they're going to try and kill you. And we'll behead multitudes. <laughs> Jesus.
John 16. We're just going to ignore that. It does remind me of a funny story, though. When Becky and I and the kids were living in Denver, long before I'd ever heard of a Messianic congregation, we were in a Baptist church, and the preacher was known for going long past the appointed time. So on one particular Sunday at noon, alarm watches went off all over the congregation. <laughs> he had no sense of humor. John 16, 21. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. That word sorrow there in verse 21 is the word tribulation. So God did not promise that you and I would never get sick, that we would never get hurt, that nothing bad would ever happen to us. That word anguish. It's the word anguish in verse 21 that is tribulation. Now to Acts 14, 22. We're almost done because my time is about done. And I know that the brain cannot absorb more than the derriere can withstand. So Acts 14, 22. The Apostle Paul and Barnabas, they've come and they've preached. Verse 22, it tells us they're strengthening the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. Why are they exhorting them to continue in the faith? Because people can walk away from their faith. And saying we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. This is how they encouraged them to continue in their faith saying God never said it's going to be a bed of roses. We must endure the tribulations that come in this world if we're to enter the kingdom of God. If you renounce your faith, then all is lost. 2 Corinthians 4. Yeah, I was raised in a denomination that taught you can't lose your faith, but the Bible says otherwise. Yes, ma'am? That word tribulation in Acts 14, do we know if that's the word za'am? In which chapter in Acts? The answer is no. 14, 23? No, it's no. not. Margot says, so many Jews lost faith through the Holocaust. Yes, absolutely true. I've met many Holocaust survivors in Israel that say there is no God. And what I've tried to tell them is the Holocaust proves the existence of God. If it were not for God, then Satan wouldn't have tried to exterminate the children of Israel. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For our light affliction which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. What Paul says is the tribulations we have in this life, look at them as light tribulations. Meaning we can get through them. If we lose our lives, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So threaten me with heaven. Okay. 2 Corinthians 6, 4, and then we're done. 
2 Corinthians 6, 4. Which is, by the way, the chapter that says, stop eating those piggies and stuff. 2 Corinthians 6, 4. But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God, in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distress, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, etc., etc. What are all those things in verses 4 and 5? Those are hard things to endure. But Paul says, even on the ministers of God, we're going to have to have patience. We're going to have tribulations. We're going to have needs, distresses, stripes, imprisonments, etc. When will life be a bed of roses? In the rapture and the resurrection, when we leave this body behind, take on a new, immortal, incorruptible body, no more pain, no more sickness, where every time I pass a body shop, I won't call them liars. Okay. But we have come to the end of our time. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Romans chapter 5, verse 4.